0: The FT. Welcome to the FT Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Comment and Analysis desk of the Financial Times. In this podcast, Tom Mitchell, Robin Harding and Simon Mundy explain how textbooks and patriotic memorials are central to a new battle between nationalisms in Japan, China and Korea. Now, Tom finds that history is more alive and dangerous in the region than it has been for many years. When the Chinese Communist Party's 8th Route Army marched into Wuxiang County in 1937, one of its commanders asked to see the textbooks at a village school. Xiao Zhang He, then nine years old, remembers that the commander was not impressed with what he read. Now a tall, bone-thin 87-year-old with cataracts clouding his left eye, Mr. Xiao recalls the officer's verdict. He said these are old books, you should read new books on the anti-Japanese resistance and sing songs about it. The Eighth Route Army had rushed to Wuxiang in northern Shanxi province to harass an advancing Japanese unit that would later defeat at the Battle of Pingxing Pass. That its commanders also took time to examine Mr. Xiao's school demonstrated the Communist Party's appreciation of the power of textbooks. Like victors elsewhere, the Party has been writing its version of history and expunging rival narratives ever since. Textbooks and patriotic memorials remain an important part of a new battle between competing nationalisms in Japan and the two countries that bore the brunt of its military expansion in the first half of the 20th century, China and Korea. While many Japanese textbooks in fact acknowledge the atrocities committed by the country's imperial army during the Second World War, they often do so only briefly or with key details buried in footnotes. For all their flaws, however, they are at least subject to a vigorous and continuing debate between right-wing nationalists and pacifists. There is no such conversation in China, where the Communist Party maintains a monopoly on history and its interpretation. Jiang Li Fan, a dissident historian whose name card proclaims his mission to restore history, says, quote, "Chinese authorities need the people to hate Japan. Regimes like ours must have an imaginary enemy. They use it to gather the people around the ruling party as if the enemy is likely to invade us at any time. For its part, Korean nationalism is animated by a deep sense of victimization." but also complicated by the country's continuing division into a communist north sustained by China and a capitalist south protected by the U.S. As a united entity in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Korea was Asia's Poland, surrounded by much larger powers which treated it as a vassal state or even annexed it completely during different periods of its history. These complex currents and China's economic resurgence have given rise to a sense that history in the region is now more alive and dangerous than it has been for years as rival nationalisms feed off each other in toxic ways. Son Yol, a professor at Yonsei University in Seoul, says that all three countries are at quote a high tide of nationalism. The Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, controlled by Tokyo but also claimed by Beijing, remain the biggest potential flashpoint. When Tokyo's governor nationalized the Senkakus in 2012, by purchasing them from their private owner, violent protests erupted across China and bilateral relations were frozen for two years. Chinese and South Korean officials are now warily waiting for remarks by Shinzo Abe ahead of the 70th anniversary of Japan's Second World War defeat on August 15th, in an address that will attract widespread media coverage in all three countries. They do not trust the Nationalist Prime Minister, who wants Japan to be a proud and normal country, no longer shackled by the terms of its surrender to issue a clear and unequivocal reaffirmation of previous government apologies for its wartime behavior. Failure to do so could, at the very least, set back progress in Japan's bilateral relationships with China and South Korea over the past year, including the recent resumption of a tokyo beijing Seoul trilateral summit that had been suspended for three years. The signals from Mr. Abe's circle are that he will repeat crucial phrases from past Japanese apologies, including a reference to Japan's aggression, but shift their context in ways that will mollify Japanese nationalists. Kim jong Hun of South Korea's governing New Frontier Party says, quote, "'Abe has been very reluctant, hemming and hawing, not mentioning Japan's mistakes. He has tried to whitewash wrongdoings. We have little hope that Abe can change his views.' Chinese and South Korean officials were disheartened by a recent row in Japan over textbook revisions that would water down references to its wartime past. They also routinely condemn visits by senior Japanese politicians to the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo, which honors Japan's war dead, including those convicted of war crimes. Mr. Abe has not visited the shrine since 2013, although his wife did in May. Professor Son at Yonsei University says, quote, The textbook issue is one of the broader historical problems we have now, which turns into politics. We have memories of Japanese oppression, and so do the Chinese, but the Japanese tend to glorify that as their modernization period. The three countries have different interpretations of a single history. Pazanjit Duara, a regional expert at the National University of Singapore, says... Warranted or not, constant criticism from China and South Korea makes ordinary Japanese weary of apologies for their country's wartime record. President Dwara, Duara, a regional expert at the National University of Singapore, says, quote, Japan has apologized. The most important apology by then Prime Minister Tomichi Murayama in August 1994 was a real apology. But the problem is they keep going back to Yasakuni, so it's very unresolved. Japan's younger generation, which understandably feels it should not be browbeaten for the sins of its great-grandfathers, is steadily becoming more nationalist. A similar upsurge of patriotism among young Chinese suggests that Asia's two largest powers are locked on a trajectory that could lead to conflict. But there is an important caveat to such pessimistic predictions. Many in Japan still regard their country's post-war pacifism as both a central part of their culture and a source of great pride. Their convictions were visible this summer during protests against Mr. Abe's reinterpretation of the Constitution to let Japan's self-defense forces fight on behalf of allies. Akira Irie, a Japanese scholar and retired Harvard University professor, says, quote, Whatever future there is has to be built upon an honest coming to terms with the past. Since 1945, Japan has been a much better country than it was before 1945. This is something that Japan can be very proud of. But whether it can remain that way is a big question today. There are no such contending viewpoints in China where the ruling Communist Party has long presented itself as the, quote, tower of strength in the people's war of resistance against Japanese aggression. According to its propaganda, the Party's heroic role during the Second World War is an important source of legitimacy for its 66-year rule, alongside the renewed sense of economic and military rejuvenation under President Xi Jinping. But it is also a version of history that the party's critics believe has more to do, as the dissident historian Mr. Zhang puts it, with Mr. Xi's, quote, current political needs. The high point of China's Second World War anniversary celebrations will be a military parade through the center of Beijing on September 3rd. It is the first time such a display, usually used to mark 10-year anniversaries of the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949, will instead celebrate the end of the Second World War. Rana Mitter, an Oxford University Sinologist, says quote The parade is about domestic politics. It is another element in the way the war is being used, which is to create this sense of national identity in China. Mr Zhang adds quote She needs a parade badly this year. It will help cement his image in the hearts of soldiers, party members, and the public. The parade in Beijing will follow a torrent of patriotic movies, television miniseries, concerts, and exhibitions across the country. In Wuxiang County, designated a nationalism education base earlier this year, more than five million tourists are expected to visit an eighth-route army village, where they can live like communist revolutionaries for a few days and, when they tire of that, repair to an army-themed amusement park. The history exhibit at the National Museum of China in Tiananmen Square, called The Road to Rejuvenation, pulls no punches in its account of the country's century of humiliation, a period that stretches from Britain's victory over the Qing Dynasty in the First Opium War of 1839 to the Japanese invasion during the Second World War, with the rape of Nanking presented as the worst single outrage. The Chinese government maintains that Japanese soldiers massacred more than 300,000 people and raped women and girls indiscriminately during their December 1937 sack of Nanking, better known today as Nanjing. The exhibit begins, quote, After Britain started the First Opium War, the imperial powers descended on China like a swarm of bees, looting our treasures and killing our people. Installations include graphic images that most parents would consider inappropriate for their children, such as a Japanese soldier in Nanking leering at a Chinese woman who has been stripped naked from the waist down. By contrast, a Yasukuni museum exhibit on Nanking shows happy Chinese peasants working in a field. Owen Miller at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies says, quote, Japanese accounts are trying to, in some sense, minimize the impact on the reader. The Chinese approach is the opposite, trying to maximize the impact through very graphic descriptions. Despite its R-rated content, the Road to Rejuvenation exhibit is popular with young Chinese schoolchildren, teachers, and parents, as the Smithsonian's American History Museum is in the U.S., and the lessons they draw from it and their textbooks are predictable. When Pengzhe, a 13-year-old student from southwestern Sichuan province, viewed the road to rejuvenation with his classmates earlier this month, he said afterwards, quote, England I can forgive, but not Japan. Not only has Japan not apologized, it fabricates history. But we will not be knocked down. We will continue to strive, and will surpass them. Near the student group from Sichuan, a middle-aged Chinese man referred his young daughter to a picture of a Japanese soldier brandishing a sword over Chinese corpses during the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and 1895, during which Meiji Japan routed China's Qing Dynasty and seized Taiwan. The Japanese devils were the worst, he told her, using a derogatory Chinese term for foreigners. The museum attached to Tokyo's Yasukuni Shrine urges visitors to focus instead on the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, in which an Asian nation-state comprehensively defeated a European rival for the first time. Above pictures of leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi and Myanmar's Aung San, Yasukuni's Final Room declares a narrative that frames Japan's years of empire as a quest to free Asia from Western imperialism. Quote, Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War inspired other oppressed peoples, particularly Asian peoples, to dream of achieving independence. Not until Japan won a stunning victory in the early stages of the Second World War did the idea of independence enter the realm of reality. Once the desire for independence had been kindled under Japanese occupation, it did not fade away even though Japan was ultimately defeated. The Russo-Japanese War was indeed inspiring to many Asians. Oxford University's Professor Mitter says, In India, Nehru, for one, was very much thinking, where can we look for inspiration in our fight against the British? The victory of the Japanese against the Russians was absolutely inspiring for him. But this arc of history, beloved of Japan's conservative nationalists, is not shared by their counterparts in China and South Korea, for whom the Second World War was indeed a war of liberation from Japanese oppression. They prefer to trace Japan's emergence, as a menace rather than a savior, back to the first Sino-Japanese war. The South Korean and Chinese governments have also managed to rile Tokyo with memorials of their own to An jun In 1909, An assassinated Japanese statesman Kurobumi Ito in Harbin, a city in northeastern China. Atop a rocky hill in central Seoul. A memorial to Ahn implies that Ito's murder was justified because of an extensive list of his alleged crimes in the run-up to Japan's 1910 annexation of Korea. Among other outrages, Ito was accused of burning Korean textbooks. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile